Are you the one who will take back Metavira from the evil Dr. Santino? Well, let's find out with Jagged Alliance this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 88 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. Joe here, back to talk to you with you again once more about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. It's been a little while since I've done a show, uh, hair over a month. Uh, sorry for that. <laughs> Things have gotten uh, busy, a whole whack of life stuff and work stuff and whatever going on. But, uh, you know, hang around for the end of the show and uh, have a, we'll have a little talk about all that and, uh, you know, what we can... Uh, expect moving forward and and blah 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 i'm gonna do a little bit uh, a little bit more planning uh things like that so anyways uh you know it's uh it's april supposed to be uh supposed to be spring for a little while now and uh spring doesn't seem to be springing very well it's kind of cold here today not really uh it snowed what was it oh god i was skiing last weekend really realistically and uh you know, we were expecting to go up and, and meet my wife's cousin up at Mont Tremblant and, and, you know, just kind of hang around and maybe do a little bit of, you know, crappy spring skiing. But it actually ended up being um, at the top of the mountain, minus 17 Celsius. That is five degrees Fahrenheit for you uh, Americans. And yeah, it was a pretty, pretty cold day. And, uh, you know, it felt like uh, most of the mountain was still open. It was uh, it felt like mid-February. So, you know, from a, a skiing perspective, it was pretty good. But from a I'm kind of ready for winter to be done and I want to get my bike out and, you know, roll around in my shorts and all that stuff. Um, we're not quite there, but uh, enough about the weather. Let's get right into it. We've got we've got such a big show. This is a big topic and that's one of the reasons that uh, I delayed a little bit. I wanted to, um, you know, give these games the time they they deserved and I didn't realize that they'd be such a big topic when I, when I sort of chose them. So let's get into emails. We've got one email before we get rolling from Jeff and Jeff writes, Joe, I just wanted to write and say thanks for making the Upper Memory Block podcast. I just discovered the podcast from a Crusader No Remorse fan site, uh, echosector.com, a site that is somehow still semi-regularly updated uh, that I go to a couple times a year. I was born in 1985 and have many memories of playing computer games as a kid. Everything from Sierra titles such as Leisure Suit Larry and Police Quest to uh, shareware side-scrollers like Commander Keen, Duke Nukem, and Jill of the Jungle to sports titles such as Monday Night Football, Lakers versus Celtics, uh, Wayne Gretzky Hockey, and Jimmy Connors Tennis to powerhouses such as Wolfenstein 3D, SimCity 2000, and Wing Commander. I also read uh, a lot of my dad's computer gaming world and subsequently PC gamer issues growing up. Uh, it's been great catching up on some of the titles from my youth and getting another fan's perspective. A uh, quick question before I go. Do you have any experience with a game called Airborne Ranger? Uh, I've never met anyone else who's aware of it, but it really captured my imagination as a very young child. Thanks for your time and keep up the great work. A new listener, Jeff. Well, thanks, Jeff. And um, off the top of my head, no, I don't think I have any experience with uh, with Airborne Ranger. Um if anyone else does, you know, drop drop me a line and uh, and let me know. I kind of feel like uh, Anatoly Dos Nostalgic on uh, on Twitter 
he posts you know, screenshots and and ads and all kinds of stuff every day as part of his uh, you know daily. Well, I don't know if it's his daily morning DOS talk that you know every day he kind of throws out a, a topic and and we we a whole bunch of us all Twitter about it and tweet about it and and whatever. But uh, I feel like he may have put up screenshots of Airborne Ranger at one point. Like the the name rings a bell. But it doesn't, I, I've definitely never played it myself. I'm assuming it's a kind of military shooter-y type strategy whatever game. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, no experience myself. But thank you, Jeff. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Okay, like I said, we've got a big topic this week. This time around, I'm looking at a very cool game series I, again, unfortunately missed uh, this time around, and that game series is named Jagged Alliance. Now, Jagged Alliance is sort of a series of two games, maybe three if you take it another way, uh, but the these games were developed by uh, Mad Lab Software and published by Surtex Software. Uh, the first game in the series, Jagged Alliance... Simply named, uh, released in the year 1994. Now, genre-wise, this is sort of another hybrid game, especially once we get into the sequel even more than uh, the first one. Uh, The Jagged Alliance games are primarily turn-based tactics games, but uh, they also drag in elements of uh, role-playing games and more traditional adventures. So let's focus on the big one. Um, Well, there are hybrid uh, situations that we will get into, most of your time in Jagged Alliance will be spent in turn-based tactical combat. Now, I've covered some games of this type before, the most popular and most comparable of which is uh, the original XCOM back in one of the very early episodes. It must have been like episode six or something. Uh, So a turn-based tactics game is a game that simulates small unit military tactics through what is known as stop action. Now, what does this mean? Well, as a player, uh, you're generally given control of a small group of soldiers, say, you know, three to ten. Ten's kind of at the big side, but whatever. And, of course, you're given a mission. Uh, to accomplish this mission, you direct your soldiers, either individually or as a group, across a map. Uh, action occurs in turns. That is, time is stopped while you direct your units, while you give them orders, and time moves when your directions are complete. Uh, turns then rotate through other players, be they human or computer-based. Now, each of your soldiers or other units are equipped with gear, weapons, and uh, they have a set number of what we can call in a generic term, action points. Now, these action points represent the total amount of work an individual unit can accomplish for a given turn. So say a unit has 10 action points. Uh, Moving from one map square to the next map square might take two action points per square. Uh, Firing a weapon may take six points. So say we want to move one square and we want to fire our gun. That's eight of ten points that we've used. So we've got two points left over. If no other available actions for that unit cost less than two points or two points or less, uh, that unit is done acting for that turn. You'll go through this process for each of your units until no more actions can be performed or you decide that no other actions should be performed. You're not required to use all your action points. Though I would imagine that it's generally recommended to, you know, do as many things as you can. Now, these turn-based tactical games tend to be more visceral and fast-paced when compared to kind of the larger scale grand strategy games like, you know, things like Civilization and stuff like that, where instead of controlling a small group of soldiers, you control, you know, vast armies, fleets and political machines, things like that. However, 
they're generally considered to be slower paced and more thoughtful than their sometimes frantic cousins real-time strategy games. Now, throw on top of that units with upgradable stats and distinct personalities, and we get elements of uh, traditional role-playing games that we throw into a Jagged Alliance, in addition to some light puzzle-solving story events and, you know, combining items and things like that, some some light adventure tropes as well. Um, and, you know, we're starting to see that Jagged Alliance is another one of those games that, well, when you look at it on the surface, it's, it's another, you know, tactical combat game. There are elements of other game types in here as well. Okay, so let's roll into the story as we do. Uh, Jagged Alliance, at least from my perspective, has a very interesting and somewhat unique angle on its world and story. Uh, In some ways, this world that we're in sort of reminds me of the world that we we saw, uh, you know, episodes way back when uh, I talked about Strike Commander, kind of the whole angle on mercenaries and, and all of that stuff. So Jagged Alliance takes place on a small island in the South Atlantic named Metavira. Now, Metavira isn't just an island paradise. It's also a former nuclear testing site. You wouldn't know that by looking at it, though. Metavira is a lush and verdant island, uh, basically exactly what you'd expect of, you know, a tropical island paradise. Uh, The nuclear tests, well, they don't seem to have any effect, you know, visually on the place anymore. They did have one major effect on the fauna of the island. Uh, These nuclear tests resulted in alterations to one species of tree on the island known as the fallow tree. Now, the sap of the fallow tree is found to have amazing and revolutionary medical applications. And, of course, because, you know, this is a game, these trees are native to the island and don't appear to be able to be transplanted and don't appear to be able to reproduce. Now, all this information was discovered by Dr. Brenda Richards, a member of the scientific mission sent to study the island. Uh, Soon after her discovery, her research assistant, Dr. Lucas Santino, realized that this sap would be immensely profitable and uh, decided that he would set his own plans into motion. He approached Jack Richards, uh, the leader of the scientific mission and also Brenda's father, and sold him on the benefits of having two independent scientific teams studying this revolutionary sap. So, against his daughter's recommendation, strongly against his daughter's strong recommendation, he agreed, and uh, Santino set up camp on the far side of the island, basically as far from the Richards' eyes as he could possibly get. Over time, Santino recruited other members of the science team to his camp, literally his camp, his other camp, and uh, also brought on security forces, which uh, he used to quickly seize control of the island and all of the precious fallow tree sap for himself. Uh, Let's listen to the Richards explain their situation. This is my daughter, Brenda. We're grateful to see you here. I'm going to make this as brief as possible. Lucas Santino has turned this island into our own private piece of hell. He was a member of Brenda's research team when the medical benefits of the fallow sap were discovered. It was a breakthrough that held hope for thousands of sick children, but it presented the need for new research. The trees can only be found on this island, and to the best of our knowledge, they do not reproduce. Presently, there is not enough to supply everyone who needs the medicine. Unfortunately, we can supply very few. 
Brenda was focusing her research on determining a method of reproduction. But four months ago, an extensive fire burned her research facilities to the ground. All of my scientific journals and data were destroyed. I felt I was close, but without them, I was forced to start over. When we rebuilt, Lucas persuaded me that he should have his own facility on the other side of the island. He convinced my father that two independent research centers would have a better chance at reproducing the trees. I did it against my daughter's better judgment. It was a grave mistake. Within weeks, Santino had his own people on the island. Some of our employees were forcibly prevented from harvesting the fallow's hap. Others have turned up dead. Now Santino has us pinned, and nobody can leave the compound. We must have access to the trees. Yes, we must return to business as usual. We need you to contact the same organization you spoke of. You must decide our course of action and see to it that as many trees as possible are harvested until we regain control of this island. We'll pay you some of the money you'll need up front and the rest daily based on the amount of sap the workers are able to harvest and process. It won't be easy. The island heat is brutal and Lucas Santino is a very determined man. Bad news, Dr. Santino. A helicopter has landed in the Richards compound. How many men? One. You are sure of this? Yeah. Should we kill him? No. Find out who he is. Then, kill him. Oh, we got a little more there than uh, just the Richards's. So this is where we find ourselves at uh, the beginning of the game. Uh, you're brought in by the Richardses, Richardses <laughs> to leverage your, your contacts within AIM. That is the Association of International Mercenaries. And, uh, you know, your goal is to wrest control of the island back from Santino. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So how do we do this? Well... This is as good a time as any to jump into gameplay. Uh, your goal is to take back the island sector by sector until all 60 of them are under your control. As we begin day zero, only a single sector, number 60, is controlled by you. Uh, it's through smart hiring and direction of your soon-to-be-acquired mercenary forces, management of the local fellow tree tapper teams and guards, that you'll be able to win the day. Now, let's start at the beginning. So you're on the island. It's the start of day zero, let's say, and you're sitting in your small office. Now, the first thing we need to do is, is to gather up our forces. So opening your laptop allows you connect to, uh, to connect to the AIM website and begin the recruitment of your initial mercenary team. Now, this is one place, even right here at the beginning, where Jagged Alliance is really quite unique. Each of the game's 60 mercenaries, that's six zero mercenaries, have a unique backstory, a unique portrait, unique voice acting, and even unique and game-changing personality traits. 
you know, as with any game with role-playing aspects, each of your mercs has, you know, what we can call a certain set of skills. And uh, balancing out those skills is an absolutely vital aspect of surviving and succeeding in Metavira. So, you know, base stats include things like health, which obviously determines uh, the number of a merc's hit points, agility, which tells us how quickly they move and how well they can react to changing situations, dexterity determines the effectiveness that... Uh, they use their skills with and uh, wisdom determines both how easily they can improve those skills and also how observant they are in the world. Now, these basic stats work in tandem with four skills. Uh, these skills are what help you create a balanced team. Uh, medical determines how adept a merc is at uh, treating wounds. Explosives obviously illustrates how good a merc is at setting, detecting, and diffusing anything that goes boom. Uh, mechanical indicates how good they are at using and repairing items in addition to fun stuff like lock picking and combining useless found items into potentially useful gear. And finally, uh, marksmanship obviously speaks to a merc's ability with guns of all types. And obviously this is a good skill to focus on in general since you'll be spending a lot of time shooting things. So after reviewing possibly all 60 of these files, uh, you figure... The choice is easy. I'm going to choose the best of the best, obviously. Well, it's not that simple as you may have guessed. Firstly, you are an untested commander. Secondly, you don't have tons of money at your disposal, especially if you elected to play on harder difficulty levels. Um, as I said, mercs have their own personalities and opinions, and uh, should you choose to offer employment to one of them, they are well within their right to refuse you, and trust me, any merc you would actually want to work for you won't want to do it yet. Uh, there's also the question of salary. More expensive mercs command a higher wage, and uh, you and your paltry funds aren't enough to uh, hire on a decent-sized team of top-quality uh, operatives. So for the time being, you're basically scraping the bottom of the barrel. Now, that isn't to say you're stuck with a bunch of losers. Many of the lower-end mercs have a decent enough set of abilities uh, for the start of the game. And also, if you choose accurately, uh, they offer the opportunity to be developed into very skilled uh, soldiers, especially those with deceptively low stats but high scores and wisdom. Now, on top of not wanting to work for you personally... These mercs have all sort of gotten to know each other. Uh, they all get their assignments through this AIM service and uh, therefore have worked together in various previous jobs. So, you know, if you've ever worked in an office or in fact on any kind of team at all, you'll know that sometimes personalities have a way of sort of clashing. Well, the same is true of the AIM mercenaries. Certain mercs don't like other mercs and will refuse to work for you if the target of their dislike is in your employ already. Now, you have the option of recruiting up to eight mercenaries. However, you know, there's a lot of strategies of how to go about the game. Um, a lot of times it's not really recommended to just start off hiring all eight. Maybe starting off with four or five mercs who are one step above the worst is better than hiring on a full roster of eight low-end guys. The goal here is to balance how many mercs you're employing versus the number that, you know, you actually need. So you bring on some mercs, you went through the list, you found ones you like or you can tolerate or whatever... Well, now it's going to take them 24 hours to make their way to the island via helicopter. Now, this gives us a good opportunity to hit the hay and get some rest. Clicking on your bed tells the game to accelerate time to early the next morning. This is how you will end every day of the game. So, so begins day one, the first real day of the game. So, remember when I said the goal of, of Jagged Alliance was to take back all the sectors? Well, 
That's true, but it's not all. At the start of some days, in fact, almost every day, Jack will give you a briefing and let you know of any additional objectives or unique situations or information that he feels uh, you'll need to know to uh, you know deal with the current day. For example, on day one, we have a little bit of a problem that's preventing us from uh, making any money. We suffered a serious setback. Sometime this morning, someone managed to get into the processing plant and steal an essential piece of equipment. Without the micropurifier, we're shut down. We have to get it back as soon as possible. Until then, there's no point in tapping any trees. Damn. Anyways, as the game progressive, more more events like this will occur, including things like uh, securing a poison water supply, uh, finding and isolating new labs, more stuff like that. So after this little briefing, we're left on the map screen. Now, this map screen is where all your day starting and ending strategic management and number review and all that businessy stuff takes place. On the screen, we see a map of Metavira split into, as we said, 60 sectors. Now, from here, we can see which sectors we control. Those sectors are sort of uh, highlighted in true colors. And uh, hostile sectors remain sort of not really grayed out, but they're dark. You can definitely tell the difference. Uh, Each sector has a series of black dots or black squares. I want to call them dots, even though they're kind of like little squares. Uh, So each of them has a series of black dots in the top left corner. Now, these dots represent the number of available fallow trees in that sector. Now, each fallow tree can have a native team of tappers assigned to it. Uh, Throughout the day, this team will collect sap from these trees, which will be sent off to your uh, processing facility. We currently own a single processing facility with the capacity to process sap from 20 trees per day. However, since we just heard that the micropurifier is missing, we can't process any sap until we find it. So reassigning workers today is fairly meaningless as the sap collected is just going to sort of go to waste. When you do have everything up and running and you assign tappers to a tree, uh, the dot representing it goes from black to green. That means that tree is being currently tapped and uh, all is well. In addition, in sector 60, our one sector that we own, we see a series of blue dots. Now these dots represent sector guards. Uh, Guards defend friendly sectors from being retaken by Sentino's forces. And also tapper teams will not enter an unguarded or what they consider to be underguarded sector. Apparently, tapping is a very focus-intensive process, and the locals will not do it unless they feel like they are protected. Now, as you progress through the game and take control of additional sectors, uh, assigning tappers and guards via the map screen is really your main and only way of making income to hire more skilled mercs. And so how do we capture sectors? Well, let's send in our guys. From the map screen, you can zoom down to the tactical view. Uh, Your team starts off in sector 60 in the bottom left corner of the map. This is a friendly sector, so feel free to wander around, find some stuff, open some boxes, blah, blah, blah. Don't waste too much time there, though, though, because, you know, the clock is ticking and we only have so much time uh, per day to get things done. When you're ready, move your team to either the top edge or the left edge of the map. This will allow them to traverse into the next hostile sector. Since we are in the bottom right, we can't go the other way. When a sector is friendly... All activity and movement is done in real time. You can wander around, do whatever you want. However, the moment you enter a hostile sector, the game switches to turn-based combat mode. This is the point where your mercs' stats come into play, as do their personalities. Uh, We see the world from a top-down perspective, 
and uh, you direct your mercs around in normal turn-based strategy fashion. It's in this mode where a lot of the game's sort of emergent gameplay and memorable, event, or memorable events uh, tend to occur. Now, I will admit, I didn't spend as much time in the game as some people I know have, because, you know, they've been playing it for years and I haven't. But uh, even I hit some crazy and somewhat memorable situations. Uh, for example, at one point, almost my entire team was crossing this single crappy footbridge. And <laughs> after the end of the story, uh, this is something I learned to avoid at all costs. But, you know, I didn't really know it at the time. And so they're all on sing- in single file on this bridge. And one of my guys is still on shore and realizes he stepped into the same map square as an explosive device. So I get the option to uh, you know disarm the bomb. So of course, I'm like, hey, why not? I take it. Now, naturally, my luck being what it is, uh, he failed and he dies in the ensuing explosion, as did 90% of the rest of my team as the bomb also takes out the bridge they were all stranded on. Now, that might not be the most compelling and amazing story, but it's something that happened within like, probably the first 20 minutes of me even playing the game so i can you know you just feel like stuff like that is just going to keep on happening and you'll get into these crazy situations and and it's just it really does make for some uh some memorable gameplay now on top of all this your mercs are also a little bit chatty or at least some of them are uh certain mercs are less brave i don't want to be mean but you know they're less brave than other mercs and uh you know if you leave them alone they'll let you know they're not too happy and uh you know, they'll say that they want some support and, and that they're out in the open and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, your mercs are not just these mindless automatons. They have personalities, they have opinions, and they will talk back to you if you do something they don't like. So you continue uh, fighting through, uh, through sectors until around, I believe, at 7 p.m., at which point the day ends. Uh, ideally, you'll want to try and capture at least three sectors per day to keep the game moving forward. And as you capture sectors, you can move guards and tappers into them to begin the money-making process. Now, somewhere along the way on this first day, I believe it might even be the first enemy you kill, you will find the missing micropurifier. Keep that in the inventory of one of your mercenaries, and uh, you will fulfill the objective for the day. Now, a few more points before we uh, get too much further. Uh, Your mercenaries have access to a variety of gear from lockpicks to pistols to radios to assault weapons to explosives and all kinds of other cool spy gear, uh, all of which can be used to good effect in the game. Also, as your reputation grows, you gain the ability to hire better mercenaries, but watch out. Some of your decisions can also have a negative effect on things. You know, if you lose too many soldiers in combat... You basically show that you're inept and uh, the rest of the AIM recruits, a lot of them, or at least the good ones, won't want to work for you. In addition, if you fire too many mercenaries too often, uh, the others won't want to bother making the trip out just to work for a day and get fired the next day. So, you know, you do have to be careful with the way you act because, again, these mercenaries have opinions and personalities. And if you do things they don't like and they aren't working for you yet, they won't want to work for you. And if they are working for you, they may quit. Uh, like I said, some of your mercs are chattier than others as well, and uh, <laughs> the little uh, tell tattletales will uh, will tell you things between missions. Like uh, if some of their teammates are dissatisfied with your leadership, uh, you know they may say, "Oh, you know, I heard that this guy is going to leave if you keep shuffling around units or you know firing people or blah blah blah." Take this info to heart because uh, you know the mercs that are being told on may well follow through with their threats of leaving. Also. Not all of your mercenaries need to go out into the field each day. In fact, you won't be able 
to send them out into the field each day. Uh, some can be held back at, as ba- at base to uh, act as doctors tending to your wounded soldiers. Others can act as in-base mechanics repairing used equipment. And yet others can stay back, you know, just to train up their skills, you know, punch the punching bag for a while. At the end of each day, uh, you get to tally up your revenues and your expenses, and you get to see if your mercs have learned anything. Uh, Jagged Alliance uses a Skyrim style, I guess that's what I'll call it, but really, I would say that Skyrim uses a Jagged Alliance style uh, use-based experience model. So, you know, if a mercenary blows something up, their explosive skill has a chance of getting better at the end of the day. Uh, If they do a lot of shooting, they may get better at marksmanship. It's a very interesting system. And then at the end of the day, uh, you know, your mercs may actually go up in level. They actually have kind of what they call an experience level. And if that level increases, that will also increase their base pay. So, you know, keep in mind that, well, you may start off paying peanuts for these guys. As they get more experienced, they will demand more money. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... To get Jagged Alliance to run, we need at least a 486 33 megahertz along with DOS 5.0, 4 megs of RAM, 15 megs of hard drive space, a CD-ROM drive, and graphics hardware that could display 256 color VGA at 320 by 200 resolution. On the sound side of things, we supported all the standards of the time, you know, AdLib, Sound Blasters, Pro to AWB32, Pro Audio Spectrum, Gravis Ultrasound, and the various Roland devices and general MIDI standards. Uh, the game's music was composed by Steve Wiener, a local Montreal musician, composer, sound editor, and general multimedia producer who's composed musical scores for many television series and commercials in addition to some corporate training media work. Uh... His only game credits are our work are his work on uh, on three Surtech games, two of which are Jagged Alliance and its sequel. Uh, the game's music, well, not being like particularly iconic, I would say, does a really great job of communicating mood and setting in uh, the jungles of Metavira. I listen to the game's music while I write write up the show, while I write up my notes, and you know it really does kind of. It's really great music that just kind of gets you into the mood. It makes you feel like you are in a jungle and you're crawling through, you know, brush and you're wet and you're uncomfortable and you got a gun and, you know, it's pretty good. I like it. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, dev story time. Now, before I begin, I have to do a bit of a shout out. At first, I was having some issues finding source material for the dev story for this game, which was sad because there is some cool information in here. But then I came across a nice little book written by a guy named Darius Kazemi, which was published back in 2014. Uh, The book is simply named Jagged Alliance 2, and it's the fifth book in a series known as Boss Fight Books. 
Now, this book is around 150 pages long and is basically this podcast, but on steroids. I mean, he sought out a lot of the team members that worked on both games in the series and he interviewed them, looked into code that, uh, you know, was made open source. And he really got down to the nitty gritty of the reasoning behind a lot of both of these games systems, in addition to the history of both the publisher and the developer. So big thanks to him for providing an amazing source for this. And you know, if you're interested at all, you really should go grab his book. It's currently about five bucks on Amazon. I blasted through it, uh, making notes for the show in, in about two nights. So now that that's out of the way, let's hit up the dev story. Uh, Jagged Alliance is a concept that came from the mind of one Ian Curry. Now, Curry didn't come up the ranks of, of game design and whatever in the usual way. Uh, you know, that is, he, he didn't go to school and learn programming and eventually translate his love of traditional tabletop gaming to the screen or anything like that that we've talked about with, with other folks. In fact, he's actually stated that he didn't really like things like Dungeons and & Dragons and, and stuff like that. Um, Curry started off his career in the Canadian Railroad, working for one of Canada's big railroad companies, uh, Canadian National. Apparently, he uh, worked in various non-operations positions, basically sort of an analyst of various flavors. Uh, well, I'm confident working for CN paid the bills. I, I have a friend or two that actually work for, for Canadian National Railway. Um, his passion certainly didn't lie in the railroad. In his spare time, he made games. Uh, this was his life kind of all through the 80s and even into the early 90s, kind of working his railroad job in Montreal and making games for fun at night out of his two-bedroom apartment. He'd converted the extra bedroom into an office uh, where he'd do his off-hours development. On top of that, every evening he'd end off the night by copying his current work in progress to a disc to take with him to CN the next day. Uh, if he had any spare time during the day at work, he'd fire things up on his work computer and do some additional programming there. Uh, well, I couldn't really find what his specific work at CN was, because uh, his LinkedIn profile basically says various roles. Uh, I imagine his position was technical to some degree, as in the late 80s, I don't feel like just anyone would have had unrestricted access to a computer at work. I don't know. Maybe, maybe in the late 80s that would have been the case, but eh. Anyways, by the end of the 80s, he realized that some of these hobbyist games that he was making were, you know, they were pretty good. Uh, he had built a game that he called Chaser, in which you directed a character around a map where uh, tiles would disappear as you walked over them. He packaged up the game and sent it off to a long list of publishers he found in the index of some of his game magazines. Like, you know, if you go back and you open an old computer gaming world or something, there's usually like an advertiser index and uh, it would have their contact information. So, um, you know, he used all that to, to send off Chaser to see if, uh, you know, it might be published. He heard nothing, uh, nothing from anyone. So, uh, you know, he sort of forgot about it, went on with his life, went on with doing his stuff. About a year later, he got a call from a game publisher out of Ogdensburg, New York, known as Surtech. Now, Surtech had been founded in 1981 by brothers Norman and Robert Siratech and uh, was already known uh, for publishing five games in the Wizardry series. Now, much like Apogee, Surtech's publishing model was such that they accepted games from independent developers and, you know, if they found them interesting, they'd buy publishing rights to the game and assist the indie with any upgrades, changes, or challenges in bringing their game up to what they considered to be publishable standards. Uh, they had a committee 
I'm not a committee, <laughs> sorry. They had a committee which would review submissions and evaluate them. Uh, Surtex Evaluations Committee had actually received the demo of Chaser and they quickly concluded that it wasn't for them. However, uh, it appears that a copy of the game made it out into the general population of the company. And over the next year, Surtex execs, these, uh, the Surtex brothers, kept seeing employees playing this game and that, that they, they really had no idea who, what it was or where it came from. They just they didn't remember. Uh, eventually, one of the brothers approached uh, some of the, the employees slash players asking them what this game was. And they soon realized that they'd already seen it and they had made a miscalculation. Uh, they immediately contacted Curry to get rights to Chaser. Now, Curry quickly agreed and started working with Surtech to get the game ready. Uh, the game was renamed Freakin' Funky Fuzzballs, <laughs> a name Curry didn't necessarily love, but he sort of decided it wasn't a battle worth fighting. Uh, Surtech requested that the game be rewritten in a different language, uh, which one I couldn't quite figure out. Maybe C? Was C++ a thing in the late 80s? I don't even know. But anyways, uh, you know, he rewrote in this, this other language for additional platform compatibility, and uh, also it had to support three graphics modes, likely probably CGA, EGA, and VGA. Uh, while it wasn't required of him, Curry also decided he would build in support for current-gen sound cards, such as, you know, the first and second-gen sound blasters and ad-libs of, uh, of the day. So Curry did all this additional work over three months of nights and weekends while maintaining his job at the railway. Uh, the game released in 1990 and sold 10 million units. Uh, Surtech had the great idea of selling this game as an OEM pack-in. So, you know, you buy a joystick, get freaky fucking... They're freaky... Funky fuzzballs. <laughs> this is a bad thing to say <laughs> along with it. That was a slip of the tongue. I didn't intend to say that. Blah. <laughs> Anyways, while the game sold well, uh, the intense development effort left Curry sort of burnt out. He decided he was going to take a break from his night and weekend job and focus on his work at CN. As you might guess, that didn't last too long, and uh, he quickly got bored and started thinking about his next game project. Now, he'd recently been playing around with a game called Command HQ. Uh, Command HQ is widely considered to be one of the first real-time strategy games preceding Dune 2 by about two years. In reality, yes, it is a strategy game played in real time, but the mechanics and interface, while revolutionary for its time, are really quite different from the template created by Dune 2, and which would be kind of brought forward into uh, into RTS games even today. However, you know, despite my opinion of it, uh, Curry was very impressed with both the interface and the territory control aspects of, uh, of Command HQ. Uh, it was basically inspired very much by Tabletop Axis and Allies, in addition to Command HQ, uh, despite his general disinterest in traditional pen and paper role-playing games, and even, you know, at the time, current generation computer RPGs, uh, he came across a demo of Westwood's Eye of the Beholder. He found games of this genre generally to be kind of dull and slow-moving. Eye of the Beholder, though, took all the complex mechanics of Dungeons & Dragons and wrapped them in a quick and exciting first-person game with a clever UI where you could very easily and very quickly control multiple characters. Eye of the Beholder was the first RPG that Curry admits he actively fell in love with. The game inspired Curry to create his own game where you controlled a party. 
However, he also decided he wanted to work in aspects of territory control, defense, and economics that he enjoyed from Command HQ. So he basically decided he was going to make an Eye of the Beholder Command HQ hybrid game. I believe at this point he pitched the game to Sir Keck and they okayed it, though info on that's a bit unclear. Either way, whether it was with Sir Tech's blessing or on his own, in 1992, he started work on his new game under the banner of his newly minted studio, Mad Lab Software, again located in Montreal, Canada, my hometown. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, he roped his friend Sean Ling in to help him out on uh, initial concept, game design, and story. Ling was, uh, was, was a writer. They also ran ads for an artist because neither of them were particularly skilled at uh, art and ended up hiring Concordia University art student Mohanad Mansour. Now, I know Concordia well as it's the place I got my undergrad degree in computer science. It's my alma mater, if you will. Uh, I love that this game was developed in my hometown of Montreal by people that were probably walking around town at the same time I was with the art from a guy that went to the same university as me. I mean, that's just like, it's, it's kind of cool on a personal level. Uh, that aside, though, Mansoor actually had very little experience in digital art, and in fact, he didn't even own his own computer. Uh, Curry hired him based solely on the fact that uh, he liked his art portfolio. Despite this apparent handicap, Mansoor easily settled into the role of lead artist on the project. Now, unlike other strategy games of this time, Curry and his team took a different approach. They wanted this game to feel like it takes place in a real place, not just on a static, cold map. They they spent a huge, huge amount of time coming up with a rich backstory about this South Atlantic island, the concept of this tree sap and the Richards' plight. In addition... They didn't want your soldiers, your mercenaries, to simply be a standard blank slate of, you know, just some yes commander guy who's the same as every other guy, or, barring that, just a simple kind of bag of stats. A huge amount of effort was expended on developing at least surface-level motivations, personalities, and backstories for all 60 of the game's potentially hireable mercenary soldiers. Admittedly, a lot of them are quite stereotypical, But, you know, each mercenary comes across as a unique individual. You know, they felt very strongly that to forge a relationship with these mercs, you needed to hear them talk. So not only was this merc's dialogue all written and backstory and all that, their dialogue, you know, each merc had a fairly limited set of dialogue, but all of it was voice acted. In fact, this game, which had at some point become known as Jagged Alliance, was the first game to exclusively use members of ACTRA, the Alliance of Canadian Cinema, Television, and Radio Artists. So this led to a huge amount of high-quality recorded dialogue, even more than, frankly, some MMOs have today. Now, while all this development work was going on, things were happening at Surtech as well. Uh, it was 1992, uh, the CD-ROM was on the rise, and games were getting exponentially more expensive and more complex to create. Surtech's existing model of just buying up publishing rights from small indie devs was starting not to be able to cut it anymore. You know, the games they could get out of small one- or two-man indie teams could not compete with the cutting-edge technology and huge development teams of their competition, you know, of the EAs, of Sierra, of LucasArts, of, of the big guys. So they decided to open a development shop of their own. 
Surtech Canada opened its doors in Ottawa, Ontario, the nation's capital. Uh, and Curry moved from Montreal an hour and a half up Highway 417. I know, again, because <laughs> I lived in Ottawa for a year and a half uh, to head up this new studio. Surtech Canada wouldn't officially assist on the creation of Jagged Alliance, though. Curry would split his time between setting up this new studio and continuing his role as lead programmer and designer on his game. He did, however, use his newfound status in office space to bring on some additional team members for Mad Lab. Whether that was approved or not, I don't know. But one of the guys that he brought on was Alex Maduna, who developed the game's real-time AI system. Now, this was a great AI. It was smart. It would do interesting and unexpected things. There was a problem, though. Because of Curry's inspiration, Command HQ, you know, real-time strategy... The game's combat action was all done in real time. Now, this sounds like a great idea, but he quickly realized that controlling a small number of units in real time like this is exceedingly difficult. I mean, this concept worked amazingly well in traditional RTS games because you had many units and you had the capacity to build more replacements on the fly. This wouldn't work in their concept. Like I said, Curry... And the team felt it was very important that you and your mercs form a bit of a relationship and that losing one of them should be a blow both to the advancement of your game and to you yourself emotionally as a human. That meant that you shouldn't be encouraged or expected to throw them away as cannon fodder as you do in a game like Dune 2. Now, this presented them with two options. First... We could keep the game real-time and create additional AI systems for your troops that will allow them to take sort of independent action if stuff starts happening and you're off doing something else. Or secondly, we could change the gameplay to turn-based and allow the player time to think tactically and properly position their troops and do all the things you would do in a turn-based uh, tactics game. Now, while the first option was interesting... Curry thought it would create situations where all this amazing action would happen, but it would be off screen and you would eventually go and look and there'd be a bunch of dead guys in your burk and you, you wouldn't know what happened. It would also remove the player's sense of agency over their game. I mean, if the game just plays itself, why is the player even there? You might as well just go do something else. Now, he made the executive decision to convert the combat from real time to turn based. Now, Maduna additionally balked at the idea, saying this would require a complete rewrite of the game's combat and AI systems. I can sympathize with them, you know, in, in my day job as a developer when, you know, management comes down with a big change like that. Your, your, first, your first reaction is to freak out and go, wait, wait, I've done all this work on this thing. This is how it's designed. I can't just change directions all of a sudden. Like, what about deadlines? What about this? I'm not staying up all night. Blah, 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 blah. Curry took the complaint in stride, good for him, <laughs> and he worked with Maduna to map out exactly what changes were going to be needed to be made. And, uh, you know, while it was still a good chunk of work, as usual, it wasn't nearly as big as initially thought. Now, over the course of the next year, the game would take form. Uh, Curry would work very closely with another member of the Siratech family, uh, Linda Siratech, uh, she worked with her family's publisher and came in as the game's producer, in addition to providing uh, some general game design help. Uh, she and Curry hit it off and uh, were soon married uh, while the game was still in development, which is why, if you look in the game manual, it lists her in the credits as Linda Siratek Curry. So Jagged Alliance released September 2nd, 1994 to great reviews, but only acceptable sales. 
Now, the team seems to blame the release of XCOM nine months earlier for uh, the less-than-stellar numbers. On the surface, the two games appear quite similar, though Curry says that they were both in development at the same time, and he had no knowledge of XCOM at all. You know, we see this happen in the movie industry quite often, where, you know, one year, two volcano movies come out, two asteroid movies come out, two, you know, animated bug movies come out. Uh, It just happens, and, you know, I, I believe them. Uh, unfortunately, XCOM beat him to the punch and uh, took the bulk of the attention for, you know, tactical, small, team-based uh, tactical combat simulations. Despite this, the game still met sales expectations and uh, another game was ordered. Jagged Alliance Deadly Games, released in 1995. Now, this was originally envisioned as an expansion, but for some odd reason ended up being released as a standalone game. Uh, the tactical combat gameplay was generally the same, However, uh, this game removed the need for strategic micromanagement of territory in favor of a more structured, somewhat branching mission tree. It also added more mission types, such as demolition, rescue and infiltration, things like that. It also introduced multiplayer, an integrated mission editor, additional weapons, and the ability to mod those weapons. And finally, 10 additional mercs, bringing the total to 70. Uh, Sales of both the original and Deadly Games were enough for a true sequel to be greenlit soon thereafter. I was happy to hear you have decided to take the assignment. No doubt your inquiries have shown that I, Enrico Chivaldori, speak the truth. In the past ten years, since killing my father and framing me, my wife has inflicted great suffering upon my people. Those that may be of value to her imprisoned, beaten, and tortured. The old, the sick, even infants with birth defects are removed swiftly from the population. Now it is time to remove her. I have brought the money you requested. It is everything I have. However, Arulko is full of gold and silver, and you might be able to convince the miners to help us in the struggle. There also exists a small but determined rebel movement. They are led by a man named Miguel Cordona. If you can locate Miguel, I have written a letter for you to give him. I believe he will accept you and prove to be an invaluable ally. I wish you luck, my friend. In Jagged Alliance 2, you take on, you again take on the role of a mercenary leader. This time, though, you are hired to take the fight into the small fictional probably South American nation of Arulco. Through the 80s, Arulco was led by what is known as a democratic monarchy. Monarchs led the nation, but elections were held every 10 years to confirm the legitimacy of the sitting monarch. So basically, they'd elect their king or queen every 10 years. One such candidate for king, Enrico Chivaldori, like we just heard, ran for election in 1988. To boost his popularity, he took a wife, Didrana Rietman, of Romania. He subsequently won the election. However, Didrana had plans of her own. She framed her husband for his father's murder and forced him to flee the country. He had to fake his own death to successfully flee the country. Uh, She then took power and turned the democratic monarchy into a dictatorship, securing her position with military power. Uh, With Queen Didrana running the country, uh, we had to figure out something to do. So Jagged Alliance 2 maintains quite a bit of the gameplay from the first game, but expands almost every aspect of the original in some 
way. Now, work on Jagged Alliance 2 began in the second half of 1996 with Ian Curry acting as producer, lead designer, and initially lead programmer, though someone else would soon take over that role. Uh, So they began things off with uh, the most up-to-date code base. That's the code from uh, Deadly Games. However, the bulk of that code was sort of initially commented out and, um, you know, each module was assessed to see if it could be reused with modification or needed to be rewritten from scratch to support the uh, the requirements of the uh, of the new game. So Jagged Alliance 2 is split basically from both a, a gameplay perspective and even from a code perspective into four separate layers or four separate game modes. And most of these layers were worked on by different dev teams. Firstly, we have the laptop. Now, this is where the strategic planning aspect of the game takes place. Now, the laptop is somewhat similar to the map screen in the first game. From here, you can hire and fire mercs. You can read email informing you of story events. And, uh, you know, you can assign your mercs to various tasks and to various squads, uh, you know, as in the first game. Well, not the squads, but at least to the tasks. From here, you can also manage your finances. In this game, instead of tapping fallow trees, you must convince local miners to redirect the results of their efforts to your cause. This can backfire, though, because if you send the wrong work to talk with the wrong miner, things don't go well. Now, that's the laptop layer. The strategic layer is interesting. This one is actually the one that's a bit more uh, akin to the map view. The map, also located on your laptop gives you sort of like a grand strategic higher up view of of the world where you can assign your mercs to different squads like i said and then direct those squads to different sectors uh you know doing stuff with like time compression setting waypoints and routing them around without having to drop into the tactical view like in the first game in the first game you couldn't really move your mercenaries around to different places you had to move them you know square by square whereas here you could just kind of send them wherever and, uh, you know, provided they didn't run into combat, they would just go there. Now, the flexibility of multiple squads really allows for some unique situations. In the first game, all your mercs were stuck in one squad. They could only move around together. Here you could have multiple. I'm not sure what the max was, but, you know, you could have more than one squad. And this allowed you to do things like pincer attacks on heavily defended sectors. So, you know, approaching the sector from two different sides. Uh, you can do multiple incursions to the separate sectors. Unlike the first game, 60 sectors, Arulco boasts over 200. Actually, I think they boast exactly 200, with uh, only about, say, 50 of them being on an actual critical path to victory. Now, this doesn't mean you can explore way more of them. You're probably going to have to, but uh, you know, you could probably get to the end of the game in about 50 sectors. Now, the tactical layer is our good old-fashioned combat screen. Again, here you manage up to eight mercs at once. Uh, the UI's improved, and the amount of available equipment to give your mercs is staggering. Uh, Surtek, between Jagged Alliance 1 and 2, realized that a lot of their fans were actually gun enthusiasts, like actual real-life gun enthusiasts. And a lot of their complaints came from the fairly straightforward gun mechanics of the first game. Basically, in Jagged Alliance 1, each gun did a certain amount of damage and had a certain chance to hit, modified by a merc's marksmanship score now in response to these gun concerns because frankly you shoot a lot in this game uh gun damage was modeled more realistically taking into account things like barrel length ammo range all kinds of way 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 more stuff and you know this attention to detail 
is sort of a theme in Jagged Alliance 2. In fact, I would go venture to say that this game is massively over-engineered. Now, you may think that that's a bad thing, but it's not. I mean, it's over-engineered in the sense that there is so much detail in the action that is happening underneath the surface and that there's so much detail in the world that you're experiencing, but a lot of that detail goes unnoticed unless you play the game countless times over and over again as many of us have now there's no way to see everything this game has to offer in a single playthrough in fact curry actually continually got into disagreements with the Cyrotech brothers about you know sliding timelines however they knew that to get the best game possible they were better off letting curry do his thing over engineered or not you know from from the perspective of guns going back to that so many guns were modeled in the game that playtesters who were not gun nuts actually felt intimidated, not knowing which gun was better than another gun. To combat this, the team added a tons of guns option, which could be toggled on or off to reduce the number of available weapons in a given game. Kind of made the thing a little bit more approachable to non-gun enthusiasts. Now, the team also added some other interesting gameplay locked away behind a toggle. Uh, Curry's aim in Jagged Alliance 2 was even more so than in the first game as much realism as he could muster. However, he'd learned in the first game that he had to temper that a little bit. He realized most gamers play games as a form of escapism. You know, you spend all day in the real world, so why would you want to go and play a game that's also in the real world? To add a sense of escapism, Maybe it was a good decision, maybe it wasn't. The team created a sort of alien race that lives underground known as the Crepitus. Uh, these guys will pop up every once in a while and offer a big change in gameplay. They have very high armor and they navigate via scent. Uh, this required an actual smell AI to be introduced. Uh, to combat the Crepitus, you could actually wound one of your soldiers and have them lay a blood trail to throw the Crepitus off scent. Uh, it was a refreshing way to force a change of tactic, tactics, sort of uh, mid-game. However, and I agree, you know, to a certain extent, players didn't really love this weird sci-fi interlude in their, you know, 80s action movie game. Uh, mainly, uh, people felt it took them out of the game. Uh, the team really liked the idea, so along with tons of guns mode, they also added a toggle for what they called sci-fi mode. This is sort of like, a, you know, zombie mode in... Uh, whatever game, in Arma or in, uh, what's that Western game? You know, the one I'm talking about with John Marsden, Red Dead Redemption. You know, the zombie DLC and all that stuff. You know, I could kind of see it being there. Maybe this is like the proto-zombie DLC. And finally, at the bottom of all these layers, maybe it wasn't the bottom, maybe it's the top, who knows. But uh, the last layer we have to look at is the adventure layer of the game. While the first game had some light puzzle solving and inventory combination aspects to it, Jagged Alliance 2 told the bulk of, of its story in kind of like pseudo-adventure game format. Once a sector is clear of enemies, you're free to walk around with your team or individual mercs and uh, interact with the locals on the map. The, the, everything turns back to real time and you can just kind of wander around just like you'd kind of, you know, direct around King Graham or, uh, you know, Bernard and Day of the Tentacle or something like that. Uh, you encounter the local resistance leader early in the game, I think right after the first uh, sector. Uh, you do that by finding a young boy and his mother and providing them with a letter that uh, you're given, that one of your mercs, it, it's not super clear, That's we'll get to that in a second, but uh, you know, one of your mercs is given this letter that we talked about in the intro, 
and uh, you know that's kind of your introduction to the the local mer- the local uh, resistance. So you have the option of interacting with people in uh, in different tones of voice. You could be nice, you could be mean, blah blah blah. Uh, you know, you'll collect items to complete quests provided by NPCs. I mean, <laughs> there's so much here; it's it's truly insane. Uh, there also is very little handholding going on in this game. You're kind of left to your own devices to figure out most things, which uh, you know really lends to the whole exploration as gameplay trope that uh, I know my buddy. Ben over on uh, Blue Cup Tools podcast loves talking about. And, uh, you know, Jagged Alliance 2 pulls that off really well. If you come across a situation, you sort of just try things and you, you just figure it out. So I may not have mentioned it, but the goal of this game is to eventually, you don't have to do like in the last game, you don't have to capture all 200 sectors. The goal of the game is to make your way from the bombed out rebel stronghold city of Omerta in the north down to the capital in the south to take out the queen herself. Now, the game gets progressively more difficult and really ramps up when you get to the outskirts of the capital city. Uh, You know, there you might have to take on tanks and heavily armed soldiers, which uh, can be pretty challenging, especially if you've used up certain certain resources, certain weapons a bit too early. But, you know, in the end, you make it to the Queen's Palace. And uh, again, depending on the situation, killing her can be either very challenging or actually pretty easy. You know, she herself is just a lightly armed and almost not armored woman. Uh, you know, there's no mecha hit, not to say that because she's a woman. I just mean, she's just a person. You know, she's not mecha Hitler. She's not anything like that. But, you know, she may be defended by an army of guards if you approach her at the palace. She may be on the run to, to her bolt hole. It's an interesting take on things that the final battle in this game doesn't necessarily end up being epic. It's just sort of real life. You come across her, you shoot her, the game's over. So Jagged Alliance 2, released in July of 1999, it reviewed amazingly well, despite complaints that the AI wasn't you know, super smart, nor were the graphics very cutting edge. Now, the graphics were actually a practical choice. Uh, Linda Curry designed almost all of the 200 sectors herself. And she said in interview that, you know, if the graphics were of a higher fidelity, you know, if they were like super high res 2D or even full 3D, that, you know, the effort to design these 200 sectors would have basically been insurmountable and there was no way they could have created a game with the scope that they did. So Jagged Alliance 1 was a big game and Jagged Alliance 2 is even bigger. You know, it's a credit to the development team that all these disparate systems they worked out ended up coming together and forming a very cohesive and complete experience. Uh, Two expansions were released, the second of which actually included the source code for Jagged Alliance 2, uh, licensed for non-commercial use. This, of course, led to a very strong and vibrant modding community. You know, there's all kinds of different small mods, total conversions, blah, blah, blah. And that community is actually still going pretty strong today. Uh, You know, there's, there's there's a long and sorted string of other games that that came out or attempted to come out after Jagged Alliance 2, including a stalled 3D sequel by the original dev team, uh, an online game, a somewhat bungled relaunch named Jagged Alliance Back in Action, but uh, the show's already pretty long, so uh, I'm not going to get into uh, much on those. Where can we get Jagged Alliance 
today. Well, you can grab Jagged Alliance 1 and 2 on GOG for $5.99 and $9.99, respectively. You can also grab the two Jagged Alliance 2 expansions as standalone games for $5.99 each. Uh, You can do the same over on Steam, but there you can also get your hands on Jagged Alliance Online and uh, Jagged Alliance Back in Action should you desire. Like I said, I wish I'd been able to take a real look at those later games, but uh, the show is massively long as it is, and uh, from my cursory reading, they're not that good. Okay, time for some emails. Our first one comes from my good buddy Ben from Australia. Ben writes, Hi, Joe and my fellow blockers. I'm pleased to see you covering another series I have very fond memories of this week. The Jagged Alliance games, particularly the second, are to me games of many memorable moments. I have great recollections of finding out that certain mercenaries didn't get along, throwing brake lights towards the sound of footsteps in the dark to reveal enemy soldiers, finding Hamus driving around his little ice cream truck being surrounded by blood cats, sending flowers to Dudrana and seeing her reaction coming back to old battlefields to see ravens picking up the gory mess. The list goes on and on. It's a combination of the carefully crafted world and characters and the deep, satisfying mechanics that work together to create so many great little important moments. And it's these moments, as much as the excellent tactical combat, open strategies, and wonderfully memorable characters that make the Jagged Alliance game special to me. It's an experience filled with detail and creativity And that makes it something vivid and enjoyable beyond what one might expect from a turn-based strategy game. I look forward to hearing you covering the show and thank you as always for the great podcasts. Keep on blocking, Ben. Well, thank you, Ben. And, um, you know, you and, uh, and Anatoly actually, uh, sort of level set for me on on this one because I announced I was doing Jagged Alliance and the two of you immediately said, hey, don't play these games for like 10 minutes and make a judgment. You got to sit down with them and and get a little deep and and figure out, you know, what's going on. And it's the same with me. Like I said, you know, I played Jagged Alliance for like 15 minutes and I had a memorable moment and I played it for longer and I had more memorable moments and I played Jagged Alliance too. And it's the same thing. It's It's actually funny. It's almost sort of like for me, Jagged Alliance 1 and Jagged Alliance 2 and this doesn't really have much to do with my my opinion, you know, at the end that we're going to come to, but it's almost like they are very akin to the difference between Wing Commander 1 and Wing Commander 2. You know, Wing Commander being one of my favorite games of all time. Um, you know, Wing Commander 1 was a good game that told a good story that had very solid combat mechanics, a very solid core gameplay experience with not a lot of other stuff hanging off of it. From there, you went to Wing Commander 2, which had that same kind of really good core mechanic of space combat, but then hung off a lot more of this, like going to different locations and much more involved story and way more deep, you know, more deeper in terms of cutscenes, added game mechanics. So it really just took like the, the, the great core component of the first game and tacked on additional components and more story and more detail and more depth of world and stuff like that. And I feel like Jagged Alliance sort of did the same thing. Jagged Alliance one was a good, you know, solid combat game with a good kind of money management aspect to it. Jagged Alliance two took that same core, changed the story, changed the environment and tacked on a whole bunch of other stuff that, you know, made it really cool. So thanks for that, Ben. And thanks for (laughs) allowing me to go off on that tangent. Next. We have an email from Eric Andre. Um, <laughs> I, there is a word in Russian here, which in brackets he has written, Privet. 
which I assume, so I assume that's the Russian for private. So Privet, Mr. Mastriani, good thing you're reading this uh, for me since I would have problems pronouncing your name. It's Mastriani. It's very straightforward. He continues, I never played the original Jagged Alliance, but Jagged Alliance Deadly Games is a game I have fond memories of. I think it has been described as XCOM, just that your soldiers have a personality. I keep remembering the voiceovers when examining an object. In an ambient background with a lot of echo, the voice said calmly, a 357 Magnum in good condition. The biggest strength of the game was without a doubt the level editor. It was back in the day when creating a level was not that hard and didn't, you requ- and didn't re- require you to read a manual or have a lot of skills. I always put in a lot of explosives like mortars and often a lot of money, which I often was a bit short of when playing the campaign. A fun scenario would be to rob a bank or break into a well-fortified prison cell. But aside from the game itself, one character really affected my life, so to say. Uh, it was Ivan. I was fascinated from the first time I heard him. He didn't speak a single word of English, only Russian. And he was really one of the best mercenaries in the game, and not too expensive if I remember correctly. Therefore, I used him all the time. Since I usually play with subtitles, I had both the audio and strange Cyrillic letters which oozed with mystery to me. I remember I actually both recorded the audio and took screenshots of his subtitle dialogue, hoping to find a way to translate his speech. I also memorized a few of the lines which I sometimes use, even today, when I imitate Russian in totally different settings. So it's safe to say that I was obsessed both with Ivan as well as the Russian language. You would probably think that my obsession faded away for after a few months, but no, not really. Ten years later, I made an effort of learning Russian just for myself uh, using internet courses and uh, some language learning software. While I spent a lot of hours weekly over several months, it came to a point where my self-discipline dropped, and I can't say that I know Russian very well today. Nowadays, it's even easier to learn languages with apps for smartphones, so there's a slim chance that I will continue on my quest to understand what Ivan said back in the day. I also played Jagged Alliance 2 a few years later, but you can imagine how disappointed I was since Ivan had dropped most of his Russian and learned broken English instead. Besides that, uh, I enjoyed the game, but sadly never finished it. I think that I have a save game in one of my older hard drives somewhere. Uh, It was really close to the end, but oh, the overwhelming number of forces always made me reload the save due to an almost wipe of my team. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the old series, especially since you have no nostalgic feelings for it. Cheers, Eric Andre, aka Mr. Mammon. Good luck pronouncing that. Ha ha. It's not Mr. Mammon. I hope that's it. Anyways, thank you very much for that. And uh, you know, it's I, I talked because there's so much to cover about these games. I didn't talk a lot of, a lot about the Mercs in uh, in detail. You know, I, I also have memories. I played with Ivan and I thought it was super cool that, you know, this guy is just speaking Russian and I didn't really, it's, you know, I had no idea what he was saying. I have some Russian coworkers, so I'll have to, you know, run them, run it by them. It's probably stuff like, yes, and I'm going over there and, and stuff like that. Or maybe he's insulting us the whole time. We don't even know. But, uh, you know, and I remember, uh, oh, what's the nerdy guy? Anyways, there's a nerdy guy. And, uh, you know, I had him on my team and I had the, I'm bad with the names, but I had the the big, fat, slow New York cop on my team. And I fired him pretty quick because he was always lagging behind. Like he was a great shot, but uh, he was very, very slow moving and sort of snarky and sarcastic. And uh, yeah, it was just like. The, the personalities of the mercenaries, Wink, that's the guy's name, Wink, uh, 
you know, it's the, their personalities offer so much and they give so much to the game that yes, they, they as individuals, even though, you know, reading what the developers thought, you know, they had to come up with 60 and then in deadly games, you know, 70 unique characters in the sequel, 62 unique characters. And, you know, they admit that, you know, a lot of these guys, their backstories and their little sayings and all that, it was like the surfer dude and there's the stoner guy and there's the crazy guy and there's the doctor and there's the military dude. And, you know, it's all kind of just stereotypes. And, you know, there's quite a few women in there too. And there's like kind of the very offensive, like I'm a guy woman. And then there's like the more, you know, like a meeker woman and there's meeker guys and stronger guys. And it's just like, it's kind of stereotypical, but it just helps so much. Like I understand in XCOM, you know, they had that whole mechanic of being able to name your soldiers and, you know, that does help that, that makes a thing, you know? So it's like, Oh, you know, I named one after my wife and she got killed and whatever. I wouldn't even name my soldiers a lot of the times, but as they build up their skills, Oh, this is my sniper and my sniper dominates everything until, you know, they get killed and you're super sad. But here you're sad about a person, not just because this, this bag of stats, you know, got, got torn up. So I think it was very, very, very effective in, in that way. Uh, next, we have a short message from Spike. And Spike writes, Hi, a long time ago, I read that Sirtec planned a fantasy version of Jagged Alliance. Is it true? Do you know something about it? Thanks. So I don't know anything about a fantasy version per se. You may be thinking of of the sci-fi mode in, in Jagged Alliance 2, where you, know, you get to fight the the weird armored alien dudes. So it might be that, uh, you know, if you go through the Wikipedia listing, there's a whole whack of, of listings of, you know, all the games that, that came out and didn't come out after I didn't see anything about fantasy, but yeah, probably that. So thanks for that. And finally, uh, we have an email from, uh, from my buddy, Greg from the SNES podcast. Go listen to that. It's a, it's a good show and, uh, take it away, Greg. Hello, Joe and fellow blockers. This is Greg, uh, a.k.a. Soblazer. I wanted to weigh in with a few thoughts and words on the game that you're covering this week, um, the uh, Jagged Alliance series, uh, particularly the first game. Um, This is a series that I had heard a lot about uh, and had seen a few times at a friend's houses uh, back in the day, but I never really had a chance to really spend much time hands-on playing it. Uh, I do remember liking what I saw, but it wasn't until the game came out on GOG about five, six years ago now, I think, that I finally, I finally like bought it in the second game in the series and started playing them. Um, and uh, I, and uh, I definitely could tell that this game was certainly something that would have wowed a lot of people and certainly like would have wowed me like if I played it back when it first came out. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of things that it does right. Um, being able to customize your squad is cool. With all the weapons and options that are available to you, uh, being able to pick your maps and try to decide you know how to go about the actual gameplay, um, you know the need to be able to move carefully to have a to to, to have to, to, to have a specialized to specialized squad, um, the uh, the combat can be fast and furious. It can be a little bit frustrating, like trying to figure out like you know like where all the enemies are, like and everything, but it's fun. Um, the manual is a hoot with all the like of all the spelling errors, like and all the uh, humor that's contained in it. So uh, the graphics, the graphics and sound effects were quite good, like the time period. Um, I compare fall. I compare this game um, and Jagged Lines Two a, very, a lot to Fault One and Two. Uh, very similar look, uh, very similar gameplay, very similar um, uh, turn-based combat system, and and uh, Jagged Alliance is, I think, is 
um, like it's certainly comparable to Fallout in the same way that Jagged Alliance 2 is comparable to Fallout 2, like how they play. Uh, is the game still fun to hold up today? Well, I think that kind of depends. Uh, Jagged Alliance has, has, some, has some issues. Um, it could be very hard to get some of the events to fire correctly. Uh, I've had to look at a guide that, um, to, 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 to like I played through it to try to find out why wasn't this event firing, and you know, having to you know, it's just like I had to reload some saves because of that. Uh, you have to save constantly, or you're going to like lose your people uh, very, very fast. Um, the interface is a bit clunky. Uh, the overall game gameplay is a little bit slow. Um, I think Jagged Alliance 2 fixed most of the issues and smoothed over the rough edges uh, that the first game had. It's certainly, it's certainly a better game and my favorite in the series. Later games in the series are hit or miss. Some are good, some are quite bad. Uh, the more the most recent release that I helped to kickstart is pretty good. I I, um, I, I, I haven't had a, t- a chance to spend too much time on it. but um, So yeah, uh, if you enjoy uh, old school uh turn-based tactical games like this and are willing to put up with its shortcomings and the need for patience and everything, to certainly give this their shot. Um, otherwise, you know, I think you're kind of better off suited uh, suited up going to Jagged Alliance 2 and uh, another game of the series, uh, and which would, would definitely improve the original like in many ways. So keep up all the awesome work on the podcast, Joe, and take care. Thanks a lot, Greg. Amazing, amazing comments there, and uh, thanks for that. Keep sending those in. Okay, so, for me, does Jagged Alliance hold up today? Well, let's put it this way. I'm not a good tactical strategy player. I'm not good at original XCOM. I'm not even good at new XCOM. I love new XCOM, but I'm not good at it. I have a tendency to rush my troops into bad positions and just die a lot in games like this. And I have no nostalgia for these games because I didn't play them back in the day. Uh, (laughs) To be completely honest, and I probably shouldn't admit this, until I chose these games for this episode, I was convinced that this was an adventure game series. <laughs> Pretty bad. This is bad. All that to say that I have a lot of reasons not to like these games. But you know what? I like them. The first game's good. It's a tight experience. It's got a lot of complexity that forces you to think of your situation on multiple levels. It has a variety of cool twists and monkey wrenches it throws at you. Uh, to keep things interesting and you know the world and the mercs offer so much personality it's really hard to dislike this game even if it's not of a genre you enjoy and frankly at least you know at the start on easy mode the difficulty doesn't ramp up too quickly so you can kind of get rolling a little bit i know it ramps up real fast you know closer to the end but uh it's somewhat approachable at the start you know in in a in a lot of ways Jagged Alliance, I already did the Wing Commander 1 and 2. You know, comparison, I like Greg's example of Fallout 1 and Fallout 2 as a comparison to the games, you know, maybe even better than my Wing Commander ones. But, uh, you know, from a gameplay perspective, I sort of see this game as like a cross between XCOM and Cryo's Dune. You know, you've got a primary game layer with uh, an economic management layer underneath. So you take, you know, all the, the spice mining aspect of of cryo's dune and throw xcom's combat into that and you know you have jagged alliance uh the game pulls off this integration super well even though it is the stuff makes sense but it's it's not necessarily two types of gameplay that go well together and not necessarily two types of gameplay that the same kind of gamers like 
Now, the second game, honestly, is just, I don't, I say this about a few games, but it's, it's, it's sort of a masterpiece. I mean, it takes everything good about the first game. It makes it bigger. It makes it more complex, but the added complexity doesn't make the game more frustrating. It just increases your immersion and increases your appreciation for the world. And it will likely keep you coming back to try new tactics, to try new routes through the world, to try new sets of mercenaries, new weapons, uh, you know, and just experiencing new and different things, different experiences, different memorable situations like Ben talked about every time you play. I can't recommend Jagged Alliance 2 enough, even for just a simple run through just to just to try it, even if you're not really a fan of the genre. If you're not a fan, you're probably not going to finish it because the de- the game does get quite hard when you get to that capital city, even though after you get in, the, the hardness kind of ramps down a little bit. Um, you know, to be fair, both of these games, especially the second one, are games that you do have to spend a lot of time with to really figure them out. And, and you'll probably mess up the first time through, but if you give them the time they need... They are amazing and immersive, I dare to say, works of art. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. All right, so that is that. Ooh, this was sort of a longer one, but uh, I figured that was going to happen. So I may have mentioned this online, but between the past two shows, the podcast turned four years old. Uh, In honor of the show's fourth anniversary, I'm making a bit of a resolution. Now, when the show first started... My plan was to put out a podcast every two weeks. Now, recently, hell, in the past year, two years even, I've been failing pretty hard at that, and now I'm sort of averaging about one a month, and that is not okay by me. So in my fourth year, I plan on making a concerted effort to get a show out pretty much every two to three weeks without fail. So with that in mind, I'm going to do a bit more planning ahead, and I'm going to let you guys know the next few shows and when they will potentially come out Uh, for our next show. I'm going to fire up our second ever two-parter. First two-parter was on Cryo's Dune. The second one is going to be about Dot and Maniac Mansion. So next time, which is going to be the week of April 25th, I will be discussing LucasArts's inaugurable, sorry, Lucasfilm Games' inaugurable scum game, Maniac Mansion. Soon after that, I'll release a second part focusing on the sequel to Maniac Mansion, Day of the Tentacle, in honor of the recently released remaster. Uh, that will either come out the week of May 8th. However, I'm also planning our next Patreon hangout. Right now, I'm aiming for May 6th or 7th to have that happen. So if that happens that weekend, the Dot Show will come out a week or so later. So that's kind of the plans for the rest of April and May. We're looking at Maniac Mansion, April 25th. Then May 7th, 8th, we're looking at either... Day of the Tentacle or the Hangout. Uh, keep an eye on things. I'll tell you which one it is. And if the Hangout gets delayed, it'll probably be later in May. And then, you know, we'll go from there. The scheduling is hard. Either way, a lot of cool stuff coming. As always, you can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can always find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. Uh, don't forget, if you enjoy the show, you can become my boss if you want. Not that uh, you have a lot to say, but, uh, you know, you can throw a few bucks my way at patreon.com slash UMBcast. Uh, if you find some value from the show, please consider 
joining all my current patrons and donating a dollar or two. And uh, we'll hit that next goal of more long games and big game series. So like this show that I just did probably should have been in that long game uh, bucket. I'm going to try and kind of schedule those in way ahead of time, give myself, you know, a couple of months of playing those, you know, alongside the, uh, the current episode. So I can really get ways in, you know, I want to do more RPGs. I want to do, you know, series like Zork and stuff that have like 14 games in them and all that. So, uh, you know, that's our next goal. We're not that far off. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to stop asking for money now because that, that makes me feel like a jerk. Anyways, you can check out the show notes for this episode and all the other episodes at umbcast.com. Uh, join the Facebook group over at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Been posting on there a lot lately. We've been having a lot of great discussions. I really love the little crew that we've got going on there. If you want to come and participate, you know, no one's, you know, it's all very approachable. It's all very fun. We love anything, even if it doesn't really have to do with the show, if it's got to do with gaming and just in general, you know, I'm playing the division. I have a PS4. I got to get a new, uh, a new gaming rig. Cause you know, my, my old GTX 670 is, uh, is not doing it so much anymore. I got to throw a 980 in there, get a new CPU and blah, blah, blah. So any of that stuff, I'm a huge nerd. I love talking about it all. Oh, you can find the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash UMB show. Lots of chat going on there. And uh, me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476 if you care about what I'm doing in my normal life. <laughs> and uh, you can find the show on YouTube at youtube.com slash UMB cast where I put up videos of my game research sessions. I wasn't able to do it for this one just because I didn't feel like this game and even the last game when I did Sim Tower, or not the last game, but when I did do Sim Tower, uh, you know, it wasn't really ideal for uh, for that kind of thing but uh, maniac mansion definitely going to be some stuff up there so go check out youtube subscribe to the show on itunes stream us live at stitcher radio that is that and we will see you next time for maniac mansion here in the upper memory block battle control terminated you've been listening to the upper memory block podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.